0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 32 to 51. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bare in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So we are in a series on David, as you know. David, uh, in the Bible, uh, we are given the longest narrative presentation of a single human life in the Bible. It's it's all about David, okay? And so if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand Christianity, you got to understand David. There are things that happened in the life of David, things he did that find resonance all throughout Scripture. So you got to understand David if you're going to understand God and Christianity. That's why we're talking about David. Uh, Today, we're looking at a text that gives to us a very famous story, a story so famous, I fear that uh, we might be tempted to, to hear this, and we might feel like we know this, and so therefore the words come in one year and not the other. Right? But I want to look through this story uh, through another lens. I think one of the things about Scripture is amazing to me is it's dynamic. And you know, the way I read this text when I was 16 very different from the way I read it when I was 26 and very different from the way I read it now today as a 36-year-old. And that's what happens with Scripture. As you grow, it speaks to you differently. Different things pop up. And the thing that popped up for me as I was studying this text and preparing to deliver to you God's word was I think this text tells us a lot about fear. I think the three characters that are given to us in this text, they're Saul, Goliath, and David. Each of them give to us a very different and unique and different handle and approach on fear. So when we talk about fear, let me ask you guys, what do you fear? Right? What does fear look like for you? What does fear feel like for you? What kind of things get you fearful? Right? How do you handle that? How do you cope? And what does the Bible say to that? And that's what I want to talk about today. Okay? So I want to make three points from this text. First, I want to look at Saul. Saul. And he shows us the universal problem of fear. Fear is a universal problem. Secondly, I want to look at Goliath. And he shows us a false solution to fear. And the third, I want to look at David. And David shows us the true champion, the only hope for fear. Okay, so we're going to look at Saul, Goliath, and David. All right, so first, let's look at Saul. Who is King Saul? Uh, If you've been with us, you know this uh, from the sermon series. He's a king on decline. By the time we reach this portion of the narrative. He's had a series of missteps, mistakes, miscues, and he's on his way out, okay? And here, what is he facing in this situation right here? Well, uh, you have to read the whole chapter to get this, but uh, you can kind of picture the scene. Let me paint it for you. Uh, Saul and his army, the Israelite army, on one side of a valley, the Valley of Elah, facing off against their, their foes, their rival enemies, the Philistines, like a thorn in their, in their side, right? On the other side of the valley, so you have a valley, right? On one side, the Israelite army. On the other side, the Philistine army, right? And they're drawing battle lines. And the battle lines are probably drawn right in the bottom of the valley, right? That's the kill zone, right? But they're getting ready. They're marshalling their troops. The battle's going to happen. And as they're getting ready for the battle, what happens? The Philistines, they call upon their champion, their warrior named Goliath a very imposing man, a champion, a military champion, right? And he goes out day after day as the armies are rallying, getting ready. He goes out day after day taunting the Israelites, basically calling them out and saying, who among you is man enough to fight me? Let's do this. Instead of having all our armies fight, let's just do this, right? You choose a champion from out of your army. I'll be the champion from my army, okay? And we'll just fight man to man, mano y mano. If I win, you become our slaves. If he wins, we become your slaves. Right? This day I defy you. Choose a man. Let's fight. Let's do, let's do this thing. Right? And day after day, he's taunting the Israelites, calling them out. And day after day, the Israelites fail to respond. They're all scared. Right? So what is Saul facing? He's facing right, a high-stakes battle against an insurmountable enemy an unbeatable foe in Goliath, right? an army and a people that are bent on conquering and subduing his nation. Okay? He's facing loss of morale among his troops day after day. The morale of the Israelite army is just going down. Right? He's facing uh, impending doom. He's going to lose a battle. Right? Troops' morale is lowering. He's going to lose a battle. Not only that, he's facing the loss of his kingdom. Right? Not only that, he's facing, as a king, Right? The ancient Near tradition was if you defeated the other army, you didn't immediately always kill the king, you kept him. Right? You would maim him, you would humiliate him, you would chain him to your dining table. Right? You'd be tortured, humiliated, and eventually killed. So Saul is facing right, death, loss of face, humiliation, loss of his kingdom, right? a black mark on his career. His name will go down through the ages as the man who lost Israel. Right? And how is he dealing with it? Earlier in the chapter, there's a great verse where um, Goliath is just challenging Saul. And upon hearing the Philistines' words, verse 11, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified, just gripped with fear. He's a picture of a man who's just racked, panicking, sheets of panic, gripped with fear. Okay? Let's pause. Can we relate to Saul at all? Okay, we might be tempted to think, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. It sucks for him, right? Can we relate to Saul at all? I think if we're honest with ourselves, you know, absolutely we can. Every single man, woman, and child knows what it is to fear, right? Why? Because fear, it's a universal experience. It's probably the universal experience. Uh, different people... We can fear different things in different ways for different reasons, right? We don't, you know, we're not Saul. We're not facing the things Saul is facing, but we do face things, right? We're not Saul. We might not express fear the way he's expressing, but we do express fear. So different people, different people among us facing different situations, right, express fear and experience fear differently. For some of us, the experience of fear, when I say fear, you immediately think of something intense, like a flash fire, um, like, like a man who every time he hears a car backfire, right, in South Philly, right, immediately just breaks out into a sweat, just starts hyperventilating, panics, because it reminds him of Vietnam, right? Or the intense panic and fear of a parent walking along, walking in Ikea, you know, a crowded Saturday in Ikea, right, thinking that their toddler has been following them all along. The arrows are on the ground, Right? How hard can it be? The toddler falling, and it turns around to no- discover toddlers nowhere in sight, right? in a crowded store. Just immediate, intense panic and fear, right? thinking the worst. Right? For others of us, when we think about fear, we think of something gradual, like a pressure that just kind of mounts and mounts and builds until it becomes overwhelming. Right? Like the lonely, aging single who feels a window shrinking and starts to question and wonder, will I ever have somebody to love and share my life with, right? Or, you know, wondering, if, is there going to be enough money at the end of the month, the monthly billing cycle? Is there going to be enough money? Are we going to be able to make ends meet, right? Money. Or, you know, have I saved enough? Is my life cycle going to outrun my money, right? What if the money's not there, right? Fear of money. Or for others of us, it's like, it's just a deadline that's looming over our heads, right? And at a certain point, we realize we're not going to make it. We're not going to get it done. And we just think about the disappointment, the disapproval, the anger of bosses and colleagues and superiors, right? So I'll tell you what fear looks like for me. Fear for me looks like, um, you know, 5 a.m., right? A couple of hours before the alarm's supposed to go off. You know, 5 a.m. Sunday morning, I just, I just, I'm just up, and my body's still asleep, my eyes are still closed, but my mind is racing, my heart is beating hard. And the first thing I'm thinking is, oh my God, I don't feel prepared. This sermon sucks. People are going to hate it. It's going to be the worst sermon in the history of Metro. Get up, work on this sermon, get up, practice it, right? And I'm up, you know, I can't go back to sleep. I try to go back to sleep, but I can't. I'm just, I'm just worried, I'm just anxious, I'm fearful. And so I'm up, right, before dawn, and I'm working, I'm working. I'm trying to concentrate and focus, but all I keep thinking, and this is what fear does, it just just takes a life of its own, it's just worst-case scenario, right? I just keep thinking, it's going to be bad. (laughs) You're going to look so stupid, right? This is your last sermon in Metro, and you're going to look stupid, you know? And uh, I'm just thinking that, and looking out, it's, you know, people are going to know it's bad, you know, and their eyes are going to droop, and... You know, everyone's going to be sleeping, and at the end, you know, usually people come up to you and kind of congratulate you or tell you how much the sermon helped, and, you know, none of that's going to happen, Sherwin. You know, they're all going to say, wow, that was pretty bad, you know, uh, you know, better luck next time, and, you obviously here at Metro, we record and put our sermons online, so even there, you know, my friends and family who, who listen to the sermons, they're going to hear this, right? And they're going to think, wow, that was bad. You know, that was uh, not good. Maybe Sherwin isn't cut out to be a pastor after all, right? And then maybe the recording makes its way to the presbytery, right? The presbytery just licensed me. They just recently licensed me to preach. They might hear this, and they're going to say, oh, you know, maybe we should revoke that license, you know? And then Westminster is going to, you know, hear about this. And then, you know, so, you know, it's just, and then my my kids will stop talking to me. You know, Judy will, you know? (laughs) But that's what fear does. Worst-case scenario is panic, you know. And um, whether it's a fear of preaching a bad sermon, whether it's fear of failure, whether for you it's fear of losing friends, whether it's fear of losing the approval of people you respect, uh, losing the approval of people you desperately want their approval, right? Fear of losing your health, fear of making the wrong decisions, fear of, fear of humiliation, fear of death, right? No matter what your face, right, no matter what your fear experience, right, when we look at Saul and we look at our lives, there's a common thread. And the common thread is this, that every time we're fearful, we're coming up against something. We're, We're realizing something that fundamentally, at the core of who we are as human beings, at the core of who we are as creatures, we are completely unable to control and secure and hang on to the things that make life worth living, the things that make us feel safe and secure and worthwhile, we are utterly out of control of those things, right? And fundamentally, we are vulnerable. We are weak. We are helpless. Before the unpredictabilities of life, the Goliaths that may come, right, we absolutely cannot control, right, the chaos, right? We're vulnerable, right? What makes fear particularly heartbreaking and, and tormenting, uh, as we can see in Saul, it's, it's not always the external threat. It's not just the Goliaths, right? It's not just the inter- external threat, but as I've shared, it's, it's the in- internal turmoil that just sort of takes over and torments you. There's a um, guy who uh, wrote from a first-person perspective what, what it feels like for him when just sheer panic and intense fear takes over, and this is what he says. Fear blindsides me. Uh, the first time I had a panic attack, I had no idea that any experience could be so terrible. The feelings were horrifying beyond words. It's like I'm walking and a trap door just opens up before me and I'm free-falling with no net. The panic is blinding. Now I'm completely alone and isolated. And all sense of stability, continuity, anything predictable you could count on. Any groundedness, any meaning that could stand up to the chaos just totally collapses. It's terrifying. There's no name, no words. It makes absolutely no sense. And there's no place of refuge. There's no solid ground, no safety anywhere. And that is fear. All right, that is fear. When things happen that just bring up the stark reality that we're powerless, we are absolutely powerless, In an ultimate sense, we cannot control our lives. In an ultimate sense, we cannot guarantee our lives. The things that matter, we cannot guarantee our children. We cannot guarantee our money. We cannot guarantee our health. We don't even know when we're going to die, right? And every fear experience you have, it's it's a brush against this reality. That's the common core experience of fear. What Saul is going through, we understand at a fundamental level right? Psalm 55 says this, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. So when we look at Saul, right, we're looking at a biblical intense crystallized picture of fear, right? What do you fear? What is your fear experience today? Right? What gets you fearful? What does fear look like for you? And what do we do about it? That brings me to my second point. For my second point, I want to look at Goliath because I believe he shows us a false solution. Right? How do we cope? How do we deal? What do we do when we're fearful, when we brush up against the reality of the fragility of our lives? So what do we do? Goliath shows us, I think, a false solution. Who is Goliath? Right? Goliath, we're told... He's a Philistine champion. He's the champ, okay? He is, according to Saul, a career soldier. He's a military expert. When David wants to go battle Goliath, Saul tries to dissuade him. What does Saul say? Saul says, he's been a fighting man since his youth, right? He's a career soldier, martial arts expert probably, right? Um, We also know he's a physical specimen. He's probably around seven to eight feet tall, Right, and not the slow seven to eight feet. You know, probably very, probably an athletic freak, right? Like that physical specimen. We're told that his armor, right, weighed uh, six thousand shekels, one hundred fifty pounds. Just his chain of armor, of armor, one hundred fifty pounds. Right. We're told that his javelin spear, not the whole thing, but just the just the tip of the spear, weighed twenty pounds in itself. Okay. Um, physical specimen absolute beast. We also know that he's equipped with the most advanced, technologically up-to-date military hardware and weaponry, right? The description we're given of Goliath early in the chapter is bronze helmet, bronze armor, bronze shin guards, right? And, you know, in that, in the second uh, millennium BC, ancient Near East, bronze, that was it. That was the latest, you know, iPad, keynote, uh, you know, bronze was valuable, incredibly hard metal, right? Valuable metal, rare metal, too. Uh, very, very valuable alloy. And Goliath had a lot of it. 150 pounds, huge spear, huge javelin, bronze tipped, right? So the Philistines had basically given to him a lot of their bronze, putting all their eggs in one basket. So the picture we get of Goliath is, is probably like, you know, if the Incredible Hulk had a kid with James Bond, you would have Goliath, right? Just right, imposing, right? And the picture we're given, what, what does he represent? How does he function in this story? And this is one of the most striking things uh, for me as I read this text was when Saul, he passes the buck off to David. Okay, Saul, Saul is too fearful to fight, gripped with fear, can't fight. David wants to fight. Saul says, okay, go and the Lord be with you. What does Saul do in the text? What did we just read? What does Saul do? He says, go, the Lord be with you. And then, having said everything about Goliath and his armor, right, what does Saul do? He tries to equip David with a bronze helmet and bronze armor. Why? What's he doing? He's trying to make David into another Goliath, right? What does Saul think is needed to be Goliath? This hulking brute, right? Bronze armor, right? You need bronze armor as well, right? Saul is trying to dress up David like Goliath. Saul wants David to be like Goliath. For Saul, what does Goliath represent? Goliath is not just the enemy. Goliath also represents a picture of strength, security, Military know-how. Goliath is what Saul wants to be. Goliath for Saul is what security looks like, what winning looks like, what safety looks like, right? right? Saul looks at Goliath and sees in Goli- Goliath an object of aspiration. Oh, if only we had somebody like that. Oh, if only I were like that. Right? So Goliath represents then He's, here's a picture of a man utterly impervious, right? Latest high tech armor, utterly impervious, utterly invulnerable, strong, right? Experienced, right? Goes out to the front lines, is brash. You know, he's not the kind of guy who gets struck by fear. He's the kind of guy that strikes fear in others, right? And Saul sees that and wants that, right? He's a man whose security and safety completely rests in his own hands right? A man whose life depends on no one but himself. Goliath is the ancient Near Eastern solution to fear. How do you cope with fear, Saul? What do you do when you're fearful? Be like Goliath, right? And for us, we look at that, and we're not very impressed, right? right? We live in a time where bronze armor is not going to impress us, right? I think we live in a time where we've seen Indiana Jones, right? What do you do? Right? When your guy comes at you with swords, you pull out a gun. Right? We're not impressed by Goliath. Right, We don't look at Goliath and immediately think, oh, if only we could be like that, how much better our lives would be. Oh, if only we could be like that, how much more safe and secure our lives could be. But if we're honest, we do have modern-day Goliaths. Right? We do have things we turn to for safety and security in the face of fear. We absolutely do. For some of us, right, when we are struck by fear, uh, we're driven to deal with it by using our reason, trying to rationalize our way out of it. Right? Not too long ago, our son Nathan had um, a dental procedure, uh, very scared, very scared. So, you know, we had multiple teeth being pulled out. And we're trying to prep him. The date's marked on the calendar. We've got a couple of days. but we're trying to prep and prepare him. And we're rationalizing. We're giving him statistics. We're basically saying, you know, many children have this done, and they're totally fine. This dentist has done it many times. You have nothing to worry about, right? We're giving statistics. We are trying to reason, rationalize, and it's not working. And at a certain point, we realize why. Because if that was done to us, it wouldn't work as well, right? If you're in a plane, right, and you're flying, you're six miles off the ground, and suddenly this turbulence, right? Panic, fear hits, and the person next to you starts giving you statistics. Well, you know... You know, air, you know air, air travel is still the safest way to travel, right? You're much more safer in the plane than in the car down there, right? It might be true, but you know, it doesn't help, right? You're still, you're still coming up against the sense of your fragility. You still know, hey, that's true, but this plane can still go down, right? Some of us try to, you know, reason, rationalize our way, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Some of us, the Goliath for us, our safety sources for us, We're driven to deal with fear by being controlling and manipulating and domineering and overcoming our obstacles, overcoming the things we fear, right? Trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to predict the unpredictable, trying to plan our way through things, right? There's an author I read recently, great book named uh, Great by Choice by Jim Collins, right? And Jim Collins, he's a researcher. And in this book, he studied companies that in an unpredictable, chaotic market, right, compared to other companies that fell, these companies did well. And the question that that drove him was, why? Why do some companies in the same terrible, unpredictable, chaotic market, while other companies are dropping like flies, why do some companies thrive and succeed and stabilize in unstable times, Right? And he tried to distill those principles down into, into a readable form. Right? And he was giving an interview with Charlie Rose. And Rose was asking him, what drove you? you know, why study this? Right? It's a fascinating question, but what, why, why is it such a pressing question for you? And then Collins, in a moment of humility, a moment of vulnerability related, that ever, ever since he was a child, as a child, he had gone through traumatic instability. Right? And from childhood, he had always, the driving force of not just his research, but his life, driving question had always been, how do I make predictable the unpredictable? How do I find islands of safety in oceans of chaos? Right? That's what drove him. And for some of us, that drives us as well. Right? The sense of fragility, sense of the unknown, sense of fear, we just we work harder, we plan more thoroughly, we try to control everything. Right, dominate everything. And in the end, we know it doesn't work. No matter how, how tightly controlled my career, no matter how hard I work, no matter how tightly controlled my finances, no matter how dominating I am in my relationships, in the end, I cannot guarantee that things won't go south. I can't control those things. Right? For others of us, we're driven to deal with fear by escaping and avoiding, so fear arises. Things that threaten us arise. We run away, right? Um, avoiding responsibility, procrastination as a lifelong, you know, habitual pro procrastination. I, for the longest time, I thought procrastination was just laziness, but more and more I realized it's really fear, right? fear of responsibility, fear of failure, run away, run away, right? Uh, Self medicating, taking the edge off, just run, avoid. Right? In the end, we know that it doesn't work. In the end, we know that life is real. Right? We can't escape reality. That's not, to live a life of constantly running, that's not livable. You can't live that way. You can't build a life based on running. So we have different Goliaths, Right? control, running, rationalizing, some I haven't mentioned yet. Right? You can tell me after the sermon. But the fact is, we all have these Goliaths, things we look to in the, in the face of fear, things we cling to in the face of panic. What are your Goliaths this day? What do you run to? What do you instinctively, habitually, without even thinking, what do you do? Where do you turn? Where do you look? Okay. Another way to get at it is, what are your if-onlys? What are your if-onlys? If only. If only I had this. If only I had that. If only this person was like this. Right? those reveal our oceans, uh, our islands of refuge, which we're trying to make in oceans of instability, right? The problem is, like Goliath, here's Goliath, right? Just invulnerable, right? Impervious to pain, suffering, indomitable. He goes out completely confident that he's going to win, right? All that armor, 150 pounds of bronze armor, that helmet, his weaponry, right? The latest in military technology, right? utterly defenseless against a shepherd's slingshot, right? That's a picture of our Goliaths as well. Our our health can go at any time. Our money may not always be there. Close friends and family, they, they could betray us, right? They're clearly not things big enough for us to build our lives upon. We can't establish our lives there, right? So what do we do? What can we do? I think that one of the things that really struck me as I was thinking about fear and fear in my own life and, and how the Bible talks about fear, the Bible talks about fear more than anything else. There's 300 commands and promises in the Bible about fear. Right? Um, and it struck me that the way that God looks at fearful people, like you and me, it is so different from the way our world and our culture looks at fearful people. Right? The way that our culture wants to deal with fear it's like a mechanic looking at a ship that's been grounded. And it's got all these holes poked in the hull. And what does a mechanic do? Let's just patch up these holes, right? Let's get, let's get it fixed, get the boat back on the water, up, running functional, right? Our culture thinks of fear like that. There are symptoms. There are things you got to alleviate, things you got to fix. You know, cognitive, uh, you know, positive thinking you got to reinforce, right? Things you got to fix to get that boat on the water to get it functional, right? But studying the Bible, it just struck me. That is not at all how God looks at fearful people. The way that God looks at a fearful person is like he looks at a fearful person like you would look at a child, right? Stuck in the middle of the road, right? Abandoned or crying because he lost his parents, right? And looking around and just busy in the middle of a busy street, all these big people walking past, right? And the child's just crying, scared. And God, is all as we just comes to the child. What does the child need? He doesn't need statistics, right? He doesn't need right, cognitive, you know, positive thoughts. He needs somebody to pick him up and say, don't worry, honey, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. I got you. I'll take care of you, right? It's just hit me like a ton. That's the way God looks at fearful people. The resources the Bible gives are totally different, totally counter to the world's. And that brings me to my third point let's look at david right and he shows us about the true champion who is who is david david we're told is this bold courageous confident young man who when everyone else was too afraid he said oh, i will do it i'm going to step up and he steps up and he goes to battle against goliath fights on behalf of the nation does what saul should have done right Is victorious And leads the people in victory. And I think for many of us, when we read this story, we're tempted to think, and our natural inclination is to think, oh, we have to be like that. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to be. If I can have that kind of courage like David, if I can trust God like David, that is what's gonna enable me to go out and face the Goliath with courage, right? That's what I need, that's what I need to do. Just like he did it, I can do it. That's our temptation. But this text totally goes against that interpretation. It totally mit- mitigates against that. This text totally says no. There's a couple of things we see in this text, right? First of all, David is, he's not just some kid, right? If you've been following this series, you know that David is the anointed one. He's next in line, right? He's the man of God's own choosing, right Saul's on the decline right David is on the up David is God's man he's a man after God's own heart he's been gifted and called and equipped to do something that Saul couldn't do he was gifted called and equipped to do something no one else could do he was anointed he's the chosen one okay so right away there's a distance between him and between you and I okay Another thing we know is you just put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. Imagine you're in the Israelites' army, right? And day after day, you see Goliath coming out, dropping the gauntlet, right? And you see David, this little youth, right, going out to do battle against Goliath. What are you thinking, right? You are not thinking, oh, my God, that's great, this is awesome. You are thinking, this is going to be bad. This is bad. Look, our king... A warrior king. He can't do this. A shepherd boy is doing this. It's going to be bad. It's over now. Any moment now, Goliath is going to crush him. Any moment now, he's going to die. Any moment now, we're going to be totally subjugated. We're going to lose, right? That was the terms of the battle, right? You choose a man. If he wins, you win, right? If he loses, you lose. He's going to lose. We're going to lose. It's, it's the end. This is over, right? That's what you're thinking. And David goes down into the kill zone to the bottom of the valley right? miraculously emerges victorious comes out of the valley wins slays Goliath and what do you know at that moment what do you know right? one of my favorite things about this text is actually the verse after so after after David kills Goliath right, what happens Right. Uh, we're told that uh, when the Philistines saw that the hero was dead they turned and ran In verse 52 outside our text. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath. They saw that their champion had won. That gave them the courage. That anchored them. That got them going. That galvanized them, right? It wasn't just a sight of David going down into the kill zone. But when he won, they knew that they had won as well, right? Uh, this was the message for the Israelites, okay? This is what the takeaway for the Israelites was. The, the message was never, if you're big enough, if you're strong enough, if you're bold enough, you can do it, right? The message for the Israelites was always this, right? You cannot fight. You cannot win. You have every reason to fear. You have every reason to panic. But my prom- God's promise, my promise to you is this, that I will raise somebody up. I will raise somebody, not you, I will raise somebody up, right? And I will call, equip him, I will lead him to fight the battles you could not fight, to gain the victories you could not gain. Trust in him. Look to him. If the right man is on your side, you're safe. The message for the Israelites was never the takeaway we usually take. The takeaway we usually have is, be like David, be bold. That was never the takeaway for the Israelites. The Israelites' takeaway was always, look to the right man. If you've got the right man on your side, not the Saul, but David, if you've got the right champion on your side, you will win. Right? That was always the message. Okay? How does that help us? Okay, how does that help us? We think, oh, it would be great. Yeah, I could see. Yeah, I totally get it. If you're an Israelite, right, you're fearing for your life. right? It's going to be bad. But you see your champion win. And because you see your champion win, you know you have the victory. That's, that's all well and good for them, right? But what about for me? My health issues, my work issues, my money issues, right? My fear points, my fear experience—that was great for them. I could see David helped them. What about for me, right. brothers and sisters? This David points to a greater David. Centuries later, there came another one. Right? Not you. Another one who's called, equipped, right, enabled to do battle against sin and death, a battle you cannot win. He was called. He was enabled. He went down into the kill zone, bearing on his shoulders, right, on his own shoulders, bearing the shoulders of the fate of millions, millions of sinners who could do no right. He went down into that kill zone. It was going to be bad. It was bad. But he arised. He rose again. He came out of the kill zone. The third day, empty tomb. He rose again in victory right? And because he rose, because he beat sin, because he beat death, and because he beat the devil, not you, because he rose, you are given the victory by your faith in him, right? Because he rose, you know, at the end of the day, right, death does not have the last word. And you know that just as Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, right, by my faith in him, I know one day I will too. I'm going to live forever in heaven with him. And just as the cross could not keep Jesus down in the tomb, but the verdict was overturned, the sin was dealt with, right? and there was no more sin, we know that for us, as far as the east is from the west, right, so far has God removed any trace of sin from us right? because of Jesus' victory. Right? And we are contemplated. We, we are in Jesus. Right? Jesus was our champion. He went, he died, not you. He rose, not you. And because he did that, you had the victory, right? You have everything you need, okay? The Bible calls us to know that the only thing powerful enough to bear the weight of our human condition, when you're stricken with fear, when you're in the panic, right, the only thing strong enough to hold you, to anchor you, to give you peace in that storm, right, to give you stability in all that instability, the only thing is the champion, having the right champion on your side, and it's Jesus Christ. Right? For us, we know this is not just pious God talk. Okay? He really won. He really died. He really rose again. He really gave you a new hope. He really gave you eternal life. He really gave you forgiveness of sins. Right? He's for you. Right? And more than that, he is with you, so you can trust in him. Okay. Let me close with two last applications. Um, what does it look like to trust, right? What does it look like? What does it mean to trust in Jesus, right? You know, for my kids, um, one thing we like to play in our home is that trust fall game. It's that corporate team building exercise. You know how it works, right? You have two people, right? One standing with their back to the other person, folding their arms across their chest or closing their eyes, and what exercise? It's a complete, total faith exercise, but what do you do, right? You say, right, okay, I'm going to trust you. I believe that you're, you're strong enough to, to catch me and hold me, and so I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall backward, and I totally expect you're going to catch me, okay? So at a certain level, right, you can think of it this way. On one level, you understand, right? Okay, I understand the game. I understand the concept, right? Okay? Uh, On another level, you say, yeah, I do. I I believe that you're good. You're not going to drop me. I believe you're willing to catch me, right? But on another level, how do you really trust? What's the evidence? So I play this with the kids. I say, okay, Nathan, you understand the game, right? He says, yes, Daddy. Okay, Nathan, you understand that I'm actually strong enough to catch you, right? And I want to catch you, right? He says, yes, Daddy. Okay, then go ahead fall back. I'm going to catch you. And inevitably, the first try, what what do the kids always do? right? They start to lean back, but then they stick out their foot, right? They stick out their, and I say to the kids, oh, you stuck out your foot. No matter what you said before, you don't really trust me. You don't really trust me. You're still trusting in your leg to break your fall, right? If you really trust me, you just fall. And it takes a couple of tries, but they get it. They get it, right? It's not just enough to talk about Jesus. It's not just enough to know about him, you got to actually trust him, kids, right? What does it mean to trust in Jesus with your fear? I think it means two things. Okay? I think number one, it means that you actually do listen to God, that you actually do hear his words. Psalm 56, I love this psalm. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. When I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you. My trust to you and it looks like this. I'm going to listen to your word. I will trust in your word, right? The power of scripture to, com- to comfort, the counter voice, when your mind is just running wild with you know, worst case scenarios, the counter voice that speaks to you, that comforts you is, is the power of scripture. And there's, um, there's a story that um, one of my professors told. I love this story. I'm running long, but I'm gonna tell this story anyway. But He um, says one day he was uh, in his kitchen just eating breakfast early in the morning and his daughter came bounding down the stairs, six-year-old daughter Gwen. And uh, as soon as she saw what he was eating, he was eating muesli cereal, and as soon as she saw what he was eating for breakfast, she stopped in her tracks and just stone-faced. And my professor said, well, you know, Gwen, what's, what's up? And she said, Daddy, I, I told a lie. What are you talking about, honey? What, what, are you, you know, what are you talking about? And she said that a couple of days ago, she was hanging out with her friend Anne, And Anne is the queen bee of the group. And whatever Anne says goes. And if you're in with Anne, you're good. If you're out with Anne, you're in bad shape. So Anne's opinion matters paramount, right? And Anne said, I hate muesli cereal. And because Anne said that, I said that too. And then the professor said, so what's wrong with that? And the daughter said, well, the fact is I love muesli cereal. And then, so he talked to her. He brought her to Scripture, to Proverbs, which says, whoever trusts in man, right? trust in man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. The fear of man, fear of man's opinion, that's like a snare. It'll catch you. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. So he counseled her with Scripture. He took her to Scripture, right? I know, honey, that Ann's word means a lot, but you know, if you, if you lie You're not going to have more of Anne. You're going to have less of Anne. If you lie, you're not going to have more of yourself. You're going to have less of yourself. If you lie, you're even going to be cut off from God. Trust in Jesus. He will keep you safe. You can trust him. You can depend on him. And he tells a story. A couple days later, she was in the kitchen cutting valentines. In the middle of July, just in a great mood, cutting valentines for her brother, who had been very mean to her that week. So he was like, oh, so Gwen, what are you doing, honey? And Oh, I'm making valentines. I'm just in a very happy mood. I was like, why is that? Jesus is helping me. And he got really excited. What do you mean? How is Jesus helping you? She said, well, yesterday, I was with Anne again. And Anne said, I hate Cheryl. And Cheryl is the daughter's friend. I hate Cheryl. I think she's stupid. And Gwen, she said, well, I like Cheryl. And Anne said, well, you're, you're stupid too. I hate you too. And Anne said, and Gwen said, well, It's okay. I'm okay with that, right? The power of Scripture to completely shape, right, transform, help, took a fearful girl, gave her courage. A fearful girl and gave her strength and courage, right? So listen to God. Listen to his words. The second thing that trust looks like, it looks like talking to God. When you trust God, you just talk to God. Um, Where do we instinctively turn when we're fearful? Right, what do we do? For me, I just clam up. I go to my own resources. I talk to myself. But trusting God means that conversation, that inner monologue goes outward and it goes upward. Right? You know He's there. Right? You deliberately, you intentionally, intelligently talk to God. You put you put words to your fear, and you take your words to Jesus, to God. Right? You can say, like the psalmist, right? When I'm afraid, I call on the Lord. Out of my distress, the Lord answered me. The Lord is on my side. I know I will not fear. You know, God, give ear to my plea, right? Hide not your, your face from my plea to mercy. I call upon you. Out of the depths, I call to you. And you turn to God and you pray to him. And that channel brings his comfort, right? His presence. There's a, um, a British missionary named Alan Gardner and in the 1800s, he was on his way to South America to start a new mission, and uh, he was shipwrecked on a very remote island. And uh, they tried to stay alive, tried their best to kind of survive, but um, nobody ever found them, right? Until years later, um, were, their bodies were discovered, um, and when they discovered the body, they found his journal, his notebook, right next to him. And um, they opened it up, and they saw on the very last page his dying words was this. It was Psalm 3410. And it said this, that the young lions do lack, and they suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Those who are in Jesus have nothing to fear. And right underneath it, the last words he penned were, I'm overwhelmed by a sense of the goodness of God. Stranded on an island, Dying, no food, no water, panic, fear, right? But his last words were, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. That is our anchor. When you have Jesus Christ as your champion, he's a champion that you take everywhere, right? As Psalm 23 says, I walk through the valley, right? And I know that you are with me, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, they guide me. Okay, that, is, that is the gospel, okay? Go to Jesus in your fear, Turn to him, talk to him, listen to him. He's your champion. Let's pray.